Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Welcome to the podcast of the Practice Manager webinar recorded on Wednesday the 17th of March. Okay, welcome again everybody. Um, I think it's one o'clock so I think we will crack on. So this is our um, Practice Manager update. So with no further ado, I'm going to um, car- um, hand over to Carol Cusack. Thanks, Carol. Um, right. So as usual, we're going to um, update you on a few things. Some of some of it you will know already, but we just felt if we just pull out the most important stuff for you, um, then at least, you know, you've got it and you can sort of have a think about it. If, if, if we cover it and you already know it, absolutely fine. Don't worry about it. So there's a few little bits and pieces first before we get to the C word. Um, and that is that um, we've been reminded by the Department for Work and Pensions that they will not accept unsigned uh, Med 3s, sick notes. Um, they have decided. I mean, we. I think GPC has tried to get them to to agree, but they they won't. So what they're saying, if you can print it off, sign it, and then scan and email it to the patient, they're happy with that. They will accept that. So it doesn't mean that you know your patient has to turn up or you have to post them or anything. They can be emailed, but they do have to be signed um, in some form. So that's and that they're really adamant about that nothing we can do uh, that was the first one second one i just wanted to mention to you is we're starting to see a rise again as the schools return in requests for um notes for children for various things um the department of health and social care and department of education have got together they have put something on the department on both departments websites to say schools do not need to contact gps and they, and they telling parents not to uh contact gps to get notes for their uh child for absence due to illness etc um so just to let you know you can refuse them um, and point them towards department of health and social care and the department of education's website as, as we did last year, we are writing again to our local authorities, the ones that we deal with in Wessex, just to remind them um, to, to put it on their local intranets or whatever, to ask them not to uh, encourage parents to try and get um, sickness notes for children. It just isn't necessary. Okay, I'm going to hand over to uh, Michelle. Um, flu, you doing flu first? I am. I think so. Okay. My favourite subject. So um, I think on the last podcast, we, um, the one that we pre-recorded, we talked a bit about the announcement and the letter that's come from Public Health England around the vaccines that can be reimbursed. And it's been confirmed for this year that the um, Q- AQIV for the age 65 years and over and the QIVC for the under 65s, the only supplier of both of those is Sequaris. And that's caused some issues, I think, for some practices who may have ordered from other suppliers. So this has been um, discussed nationally and um you may be aware that for the under 65s, QIVE is also able to be used um, where QIVC is not available. And the BMA have actually issued a statement, which you can find on our website. And I just want to highlight one, I'm going to read one sentence from it, which I think will help practices um, and provide some reassurance. So NHS England and NHS Improvement have now confirmed that given that QIVE is still recommended for the 18 to 64 at risk cohort, 
practices should feel confident that they will be reimbursed for any QIVE administered to this group over the 21-22 season if unable to change their orders. So I think it's just providing a bit of reassurance for the um, practices who may have ordered from different suppliers, the QIVE, um, that you will potentially get reimbursed. And you can, I think some practices may be contacting those suppliers and changing their orders. Um, but if you can't do that, you, you should get reimbursed for that. So they don't have to wait for the other one to run out or not get any. They, they're going to get reimbursed anyway. Michelle, is that what we're saying? I think you probably, I would, yeah, I think so. I think you would use the QIVC that you've got if you've got that. And if you haven't, then you can use the QIVE. It may be worth just checking with public health, but that's the BMA view and NHS England's issued that statement. So I think the other thing that I quickly wanted to chat about was the lateral flow test for staff. So just a couple of reminders, and you probably will have seen this in the NHSE bulletin. Um, I think we're in that um, period of time where you're due to reorder um, some more lateral flow tests. Um, and it's just a reminder to do that. And you can do that on the PCSE um, website. This will then give you enough supply for a further 12 weeks for your staff. And just leading on from that, there is a um, regulatory requirement that if you're undertaking these tests, your staff are doing this, you do need, they do need to go and record the um, results of these. So it's just a reminder that you do need to go and do that or your staff need to go and do that. And if you can check that that's, um, that's happening, that'd be great. I think that was it from me. Okay, I think we're going to move on now to um, to the dreaded COVID, but we're not going to go into lots and lots of detail because I think you're getting this from absolutely everywhere, aren't you? So I think what, what um, Lisa, Michelle and I would just like to do is just to highlight the main points and also to pick up on some of the points from practices that, are, that have contacted us asking some of the questions. Um, so Michelle, do you want to talk about the enhanced service and the opt-in out thing for cohort 10? Yeah, so I think um, most are aware that the enhanced service um, has been amended to enable PCM groupings and practices to undertake the um, cohort 10 uh, cohort. So um, the service specification for the second phase programme will be mirrored the arrangements for the first. Sites will accrue the £12.58 for the item of service fee. Um, and they intend that this is delivered using the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. I think the one thing that we probably need to just highlight is that it's an opt out process. So they're varying the current enhanced service. So as of um, which you need to take the action by the 19th of March, I think 23.59 on the 19th of March, of whether you're going to opt out. So if you don't do that, it's going to assume that you're opting in. Anything else that we want to say? There are three areas that you need to look at when you're considering, and it will, it's a practice and PCN decision as to how you want to go forward with this. And the things that you need to consider and the three main criteria relate to um, whether you can give assurance that you're able to fulfill your contractual requirements, whether you're able to draw down and use the workforce capacity that's available from the Workforce Bureau, bureaus and then finally in addition the PCN grouping should have invited all their eligible cohorts from one to nine um, and that you can that you've made significant progress with that. We we do know that some practices um, are 
really struggling with their decision and and obviously it's got to be part of a whole PCN decision because it's the PCN population if you know if you opt out um the PCN will not be able to do it unless they agree to cover your practice as well and all your patients so it's it's quite a, a heavy decision to be made and as as Michelle said now that you know I'm going to talk about quaff a bit later about now that we haven't got the protection for quaff for next year um and you know you've got staff that are going to start wanting holidays things are opening up again some of the mass vaccination centers are not going to be available because they're going back to their normal use so there's a, a huge amount of um you know uh, muddly stuff to to sort out um and one of the questions we're being asked is is if we if we run out of um cohorts one to nine having tried to get them in etc etc and we move to 10 will we get paid now we've been doing some research on this what it looks like to us is that yes in order not to waste vaccine you are likely to get paid but you do need permission from your commissioner first so if you're in that position i mean it may well be that your ccg will say actually can you share your vaccine with somebody else who is doing it can you take it to a mass vaccination center would that be a better way of using it but finally if not and you can call in your cohort tens providing your ccg agrees then you should be okay to do it but you do need to check that first we wouldn't want to encourage you to do it and then not get paid that that would be horrendous the other thing I think on um, vaccine side of things is, is I, I suspect a lot of you are getting asked about the safety of the AZ vaccine. And we know that AstraZeneca have put out a statement and it's a very good statement. And, it, and, it, and we have had it confirmed that the data in it is correct. So of the 17 million uh, AZ doses given across Europe, 37 cases have arisen of either DVT, 15 DVT and 22 PE. Now, apparently that is, is actually smaller than you would normally get in any vaccine program. This is what we're being told. I'm, I'm only repeating um, that the information we've been given, um, I, can't, I can't confirm or deny it. Um, so what that what they're saying is actually it is it is safe, and in fact when they've looked at the Pfizer um, information, the the similarities on DVT and P are also there. So again, this is what we're being told. I know you need to share something with your patients. We're trying to get something more definitive because just getting a statement from AstraZeneca is one thing, um, but if we can get something from the BMA or JVC, JCBI or somebody like that, it would be an awful lot better. But that that's the assurance we're being given. So hopefully um, patients will start to get that message fairly soon as well. So anything more to add? It was just to say that the RT newsletter is due to come out hopefully today and the link for the AZ um, statement is within that. I don't know, we may also, we could also add it into any FAQs that we, you know, we want to respond to as well. So there's another place. Sure. Um, yeah. There are a couple of questions that have come in 
um, it might be an opportunity to sort of have a look at those now. So we've been approached by um, an insured party who, in respect of her claim for loss of earnings, has been asked to provide evidence from her GP saying there was confirmed COVID within a mile of her business. Has anybody else had this? And my line is not to get involved and discuss with public health. But what do you think? I would point the patient to public health. Um, they're the ones with the data. They're the ones that are holding all the information. It's not for individual practices to confirm or deny. That's that's not your role. But public health, local uh, public health, they should be able to do it if they choose. Whoever's asked that, you're not alone. We've had that from somewhere else as well. So this is obviously a, a thing that they're doing. Mm. That's useful to know. Thank you. Um, also, we're calling COVID invites and have come across quite a few where they're abroad long term. Do we use this opportunity to deduct patients? Also, patients who have not been in contact with surgery for years and can't get hold by phone, we're sending letters to. Should we be doing anything else? OK, so to answer the first one, uh, yes, it's best to list cleanse as you go along. So if you know that that patient is living abroad for more than three months and not just that they're stuck there because of COVID, don't forget, because we've got that on both sides. I mean, we've had queries here about patients that have uh, came over to see relatives and are now still here three, four, six months later, they should be registered and vice versa. So yes, go on the PCSE website. Um, if you know exactly where they're living, you can give the address. But if you don't, PCSE will send a letter to the last known address. And um, it does take some time, but it doesn't really matter unless they're affecting your quaff really badly. Um, but it doesn't really matter because you'll still get your quarterly payment. Um Sorry, what was the second bit again? It's just if we can't get hold of people by a phone. Right. Um, I wouldn't bother sending the letter yourself because PCSE will send that letter anyway. So if you, if you go to PCSE and say, we believe this patient has moved from this address, again, they will send the letter. When the letter comes back returned unknown, they will be deducted by PCSE. So, uh, you know, don't don't waste your money or your time sending letters um, if, if you're fairly sure they're not there anymore. Straight onto PCSE website and fill in their form. OK, and this was uh, maybe just come back just much to clarify. The letters was inviting them to a vaccine. So it doesn't matter what it's for. Um, any letter that goes, if it's if they don't respond or you have reason to believe they're not there, then PCSE will check out. Obviously, PCSE will write to them in if it, if PCSE get a response to say, actually, no, I am living here. I just couldn't be bothered to respond. They won't take them off your list. Um, so, you know, either way, you, you're, you're list cleansing and it's a good thing to do. OK, thank you. Um, any view on the national booking system? Not sure of the benefits or disbenefits, is that a word, of signing up? Advantages or disadvantages of the national booking system? I had a conversation, there was a discussion yesterday at a meeting that I was at, and they were questioning whether you could run the national booking system and also your local, your own your own appointment system. And I think they felt that you could do both, but I think there was going to be a um, confirmation of that. And I do think it would be helpful if you could do both, as opposed to having one or the other. Um, and I think we were going to get further guidance on that. So that was one of the things that I've picked up, that having two systems would be helpful. But whether that's possible, they're just clarifying nationally on that. Yeah, I, I think the problem 
comes um, when somebody's already had a vaccine with you and if you haven't contacted them with a date for the second vaccine they start to get a bit jittery and they might go on the national booking system and then book somewhere else at a different site and although that's not supposed to be allowed to happen we understand and we're starting to hear that actually it is happening that patients are going to a different um, site for the second vaccine so um you know offering yourselves as part of that overall booking system, as Michelle said, might be might be an advantage. Okay, thank you. Um, explain PCSE and their form. So 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 PCSE is 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 where all everybody is uh, in a central register uh, with Primary Care Support England and um, they took over from I can't remember who it was now, um, but they took the, it was, it was FHSA, wasn't it? FHSA, that's right. Yes, good, thank you. Um, so if you just go, if you just Google PCSE and, and removal of patient or anything or change of address of patient, it will come up on their website and there are various forms. One will say if it's a violent, it's for the violent patient scheme as well. If somebody's been violent and you've got a police reference, you fill in that form. If you know their new address and say, so we know they've moved outside of our area, you fill in that form. And the other one is, we think they don't live at that address anymore. Um, we think we should get them removed. You fill in that form. And then PCSE will write to that and do all the sort of, it's all the background checking. I hope that's uh, a good enough explanation. Michelle, did you want to come in with anything as well? It's, it's, it's something similar to the FP69 process, which right. um, sits in the background. They sit there for six months, don't they, while they're checking. So one comment, like I said, we normally just deduct the patient if we haven't had a response to the repeat letters. Are we doing it wrong? Yes, you are doing it wrong. Oh, dear. Sorry about it's that. Yeah, Julie, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, it should go through a process because there could be a numerous reasons why that patient hasn't responded um, and and you shouldn't just deduct um, without going through the formal process. That might be news to a few people by the looks of it. Thank you. Um, there's no more COVID questions. It's just another random question. So I don't know whether you want to go back to um, anything else you want to carry on with. Michelle, Let's talk about second doses or something, Michelle. Yeah, I think it was just a couple of things to um, highlight. So I think, I'm not sure that, that it's our area, but this has come up um, across the country around the consenting for the second doses. Yeah. Um, and that um, some areas are saying that you have to consent for the second dose. And it was just to highlight that actually on the consent form, the statement says, I want to receive the full course of COVID-19 vaccination. So basically that means that you don't need to consent for the second dose because you've already done it for the first dose. The other um, section we wanted to raise, um, raise on second dose is around location. So ideally, uh, patients need to attend the same location um, where they had their first dose. However, we understand that that may not always be possible, um, given if somebody may have been in hospital or they're now housebound, etc. Um, so if, there's if the patient has temporarily relocated, or if the patient has become housebound or moved into a care home for their first dose, we understand there's going to be exceptional circumstances and that isn't always possible. And I believe there might be some, is there an issue with Pinnacle with the, the second dose not being given at the same site? I think there might be. I'm looking at Carol or Lisa. I've heard. I don't know. I I'd, but it's really yeah. and it, it, it's still okay. That is fine. That the second dose can be given at a different site. 
Yeah, and I think Nigel's been looking into this as part of his national thing to make sure that Pinnacle doesn't um, obstruct getting payment for that. But he, he thinks it's absolutely fine. So just to go about the consent, does that mean that with consent that the HCs can vaccinate or do you still need the registered HCP to assess the patient? So it's just about consent for the vaccinator as opposed to as a in, instead of the uh, consent for the patient to have their second vaccine. Am I making any sense? So I so sorry. So are you saying that you because the consenting process isn't needed for the second dose that a different healthcare professional can now give that vaccine? I am I saying exactly that. Um, and I think we need to check that. I don't think I think the process would be the same. I don't think you can change. We'd need to check it. I think we need to come back on that one. Okay. Get that we'll, wrong. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that one. Um, do patients have to, have to have the same dose, i.e. AZ or Pfizer, for the second vaccine? Has that been clarified? At the moment, it hasn't. Um, we're being told that it's likely that it wouldn't matter if they had a different vaccine, but the research, the data is not out on that. So at the moment, we're sticking to the line that if they have Pfizer first, they should have it second. If they have AZ first, should have it second. Have you got more information, Lisa? Yeah, Lisa, did you want to come in? I was only going to say that it's also covered to a degree. There's some information in the Green Book, isn't there, around yes. that? Okay, and um, thank you. Um, sorry to ask, if we do not agree to move to the next wave, we will be able to continue our work with cohorts one to nine the second as we are planning at the moment. So they don't want to move into another wave. They just want to do the second wave, second vaccine of the current waves that they have already vaccinated. And that's available to do up until the 31st of August. So cohorts one to nine, you will still get paid if you do them by the 31st of August. That's not a problem. And hopefully um, you should be able to fit them all in by then. OK, and obviously the cat is amongst the pigeons now about this deductions on PCSE in the form. So, Carol, please, can you share the links for the deductions as part of PCSE yeah. and the website? So there's obviously anxiety um, about that and people will just want to make sure they're absolutely getting this, the process right. So that would be really helpful. I'm actually quite surprised that, that it's actually gone through PCSE if you've just deducted them without um, doing it formally. Um, when we know they're not the best organisation in the world, but I am quite surprised that it's getting through as a deduction. If it is and you want to continue, it's up to you. The processes, as I've described. So, yeah, we'll give you the links. I think they want to do it properly. So that that's good. good. Thank you. Yes. Right, so no more questions at the moment. Thank you. I think, um, Michelle, you're going on to vaccinins, I think. Yeah, it was really just to highlight. So this is probably <clears throat> um, from April, even though there was been there was a bit of a practice run last year with vaccinins, because obviously MMR went to, I'm sure it was MMR that went to the £10.06 per item of service, um, that this is changing significantly from April. So the vaccinins will now be an essential service for practices and it's identified, um, sorry, just need to say that there are two exceptions to that, childhood and adult seasonal influenza. And they will continue as an enhanced service, as will COVID-19 vaccination. So I just wanted to highlight there was a really useful letter from NHS England dated the 10th of March, which is on our website. And I know you're inundated with information. So it's really just to highlight for you that it's worth having a look at this letter if you haven't already. It talks about the 
um, five core contractual standards that you need to put into place. Um, these are all things that you will be doing anyway, um, and it's worth just having a look, and they provide more detail in, in the Annex A of the letter around each of those and what's required for those. The other thing, the other areas just to update you on is that clearly the DES for childhood IMS will be retired from the end of March and that there are new quality and outcome framework um, indicators that will be introduced from April. Uh, as I say, in the, in the letter, the Annex B, which I think is probably quite useful and will be quite useful for your clinical staff as well, takes each of the immunisation programme um, and talks about the vaccines, the age el eligibility and the type of offer that you need to give um, and type of offer that you need to do. Thinking about call and recall, opportunistic um, and uh, or as requested. So it's worth having a look at um, and being aware of. Thanks, Michelle. So um, I think we just want to um, do a little bit around um, COAF and protected income anyway, because obviously um, we're coming up to April. And as we've been told in no uncertain terms, we no longer have any COAF income protection, um, or at least we haven't from April. And of course, it's all been a bit messy over the last two years, hasn't it? Because COAF um, actually increases in 21 from 567 to 635 points. And this is partly what Michelle was saying about, um, you know, things like the, the childhood IMS and, and flu's been doubled and various others. So um, there's quite a bit to sort of take on board. I think what we've got to um, think about really is the fact that if you, if your achievement um, is exactly what it was, you will actually earn more money because um, the COF points going up um, and um, there's various other calculations that go on. So let's just, just looking at it. So the type of indicators we're talking about um, based on achievement for 2020-21, the 139 points, which is your disease registers, 81 points, your cervical screening went up from 11 to 22 points, and your flu vax went up from 18 to 36 points. They will all be based on the new uh, rate for your point. Um, your 74 points are awarded in full. So again, that will go up because that's in, that was income protected for 2020-21. Um, and therefore, you'll get more money for that one. And then the stuff that was based on previous achievement, the 354, um, again, you'll get it at the new rate. So um, with, with, you know, with all of that, you should actually hopefully get more money this year anyway. Um, we've been looking at how they're going to work out how to pay you for some of the new indicators that came in last year. Um, and, you know, there's, there's quite a, uh, a sort of formula and a calculation that they're going to use. And we'll be keeping an eye on that to make sure that it is correct. So if you get something and you don't understand it or you think that doesn't look right, we've gone down, whatever, we'll, uh, you know, do come and tell us and we'll make sure that um, that you are helped. In terms of other income protection, um, we've been talking to all the CCGs about the local enhanced services because, of course, they've got the jurisdiction over those. We have now got... Uh, confirmation from quite a few of them. I'm not going to name names because it's not fair, but quite a few of them have already agreed that quarter one will definitely be protected for 
all the local enhanced services. And then they'll start to review at the end of sort of towards the end of quarter one, whether or not to protect quarter two. And they're so going to take each quarter in turn so that you're not put under too much pressure too early to reintroduce everything that's classed as business as usual. The other thing I really want to say is we, we, we have actually produced a, 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 an income protection spreadsheet and the trouble is everything keeps changing. So we've been sitting on it for probably about five weeks now, but we've decided we're going to publish it. We have actually put it on the website, but we'll put it as part of this podcast and it'll be with all the other finance stuff on the website around, you know, the pots of money um, that are available to you and how to claim um, so it'll be with that and uh, we'll, we'll put that up with this as well and hope it doesn't change yet again tomorrow. But I do apologise. Yeah, we will do our best. The final thing I really wanted to cover is about um, returning to quaff and returning to do a lot of the reviews that have been uh, delayed or whatever. There is still no need for you to actually see everybody face to face for those reviews. And in fact, you don't even need to do everything that's required for a review. You, you must take clinical judgment, capacity issues, everything else that's going on and decide as a practice whether or not you can recommence all of it and how you recommence it. So um, I'm thinking in particular uh, spirometry. We've had some information from the spirometry organization who are basically saying that they wouldn't expect you to do spirometry at this point in time. So do the rest of the asthma and COPD reviews. You might have to leave that or you might have to refer for that bit to a secondary care service because, you know, it's not safe for you to do it. The only one where we've been told in no uncertain terms that has to be a face-to-face -face review is dementia because you will have to see how much the effect um, has had on somebody, on, on a patient and, 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 you know, what the progression is. But everything else you can do remotely or you can assess um, what needs to be done and, and, you know, delay some of it if you need to. So I think, um, I think that was all I wanted to say. Have you got anything you wanted to add, Michelle or Lisa? There are a few finance questions coming in, Carol. Um, so is there a spreadsheet or similar that will enable us to work out the income impact of the change in the vaccinims? Michelle? <laughs> I think it would be great if it was. I, I'm not aware there is, but actually I can, under, I can see why that might be useful. Yeah. Hmm. We, need, we yeah we'll look we'll have a look and see what okay lovely thank you um this is um entitled a random question um so is there a new enhanced service coming out that makes gps responsible for prescribing all dementia drugs there's just the, this pm has heard from mental health colleagues that there might be something coming out along those lines but she hasn't actually seen anything I don't think there's anything that's going to come out that's mandated yet. That would have to be negotiated as part of the contract, and it's certainly not in for this year. There are in a number of areas shared care arrangements, but that has to be with the agreement of the GP. 
Um, and that, that's the same for any shared care arrangements. So, you know, things like the transgender prescribing and, and monitoring. GPs in the practice have to feel clinically that they are up to date, that they are confident, that they know enough about this to take on that responsibility. If there is no um, person in the practice that feels they can do that, then they don't have to do it. But I'm not hearing anything yet about um, taking on full responsibility, no. It could well be some of the local community trusts saying, we haven't got the staff, so we're going to pass it to you. We get that a lot, as you probably imagine. You know, well, we can't do it, so off you go, GP, it's up to you. No, that is, that's not a negotiated thing and can't be, can't be foisted on you without agreement. Great. Um, staff uplifts, um, GMS contract uplift 2.1%. Are we expected to pass on 2.1% to our staff? Is 2.1% the gross? Therefore, the actual increase to pass on is more likely 1.8%. So, the overall uplift to the contract was 4.1%. And it says of which 2.1% is really to go toward pay uplifts and expenses. Now, really, it depends on your contract with your employees as to what you've got. So your salary GPs will be all over this and saying, I want my 2.1%. Um, it depends what's in your contract with them. We also know that in some contracts, it's the doctors and dentists review body uplift uh, recommendation that gets given to them. The DDRB hasn't actually reported yet and even when it does it won't affect this year's um, uplift because it's already been agreed uh, with Department of Health. So 2.1% is the expected increase. We know some practices also have some staff, nurses in particular, on Agenda for Change and as we know they've been they've been uh, awarded 1%, although we haven't seen the detail on that yet, so we don't know what that actually means in total. It's, it's a difficult one. Um, it's an expectation. The GPC expect 2.1% to be given where there aren't any other local arrangements or local contracts that say differently, but it is up to you and it's a negotiation between you and your employees. That's fair enough. It's tricky, isn't it? Always a tricky one. And it comes up every year. Mm. And, and, you know, yeah, I, I think we've just got to point out that is the expectation. Okay, thank you. Michelle, did you want to add something? Just because I think, yeah, as you mentioned, DDRB, I think the salary GPs, depending on what's in their contract, may link to that, um, to the DDRB outcome. So it's just being mindful of that too. Yeah, yeah. Great, thank you. Um, local enhanced services may be protected, but I believe that's not the case with public health. Is that true? That's absolutely correct, because public health, of course, are, don't come under our GMS contract, the standard contract, or the statement of financial entitlements, which is how your, your pay is, you know, your uh, claims and everything are calculated. We have fought long and hard with public health. Um, their cabinet office issued um, stuff to them that said, unless your supplier is at risk of their business going under, then you can't pay them. And unfortunately, 
day class practices as not at risk because you've got protected income from other things. So, yes, I'm afraid you're right. And again, we, we've gone back and back. We're now being asked by quite a few of the public health departments if uh, they can write to practices and reintroduce health checks. And we said, well, you can, but you'll become a very low priority because why would practices do that when you couldn't be bothered to protect their income and they've got other priorities? So, yeah. Hmm. I, uh, and I do apologise. It would have been, you know, it would have been a, a really good thing that if we could have got that, but we just couldn't. No. Okay, what about, you talked about um, face-to-face um, reviews and what you can do um, remotely, Carol. What about learning disability reviews? Do they, can they be done remotely or do they have to be done face-to-face? They can be done remotely. Um, you know, um, there's, in fact, there's some guidance on the BMA website about it that's a lot better than I'm going to be able to say. So, yes, any, anything that can be done remotely up to a point, it may well be, obviously, if a blood test is needed or something like that, <laughs> Um, but but get it down to the lowest common denominator that you can so that that any face-to-face is is the smallest bit and done very quickly but most of it can be done remotely yes and this is for the all of 21 22 we're talking next year aren't we yes yes yes. just just to clarify about it if you look at if you look at the gms contract You've always been able to do this sort of work remotely if you Mm -hmm. wanted to. It's just that we didn't bother because we got into patterns. But the the contract actually states, I should get the actual wording out, but the contract actually states that it's up to you to assess and either refer or treat as you see fit. So it's the same about home visits. You decide if that patient needs a home visit or if you want them to come in or you want to phone them or you want to do a Zoom call with them or or Skype or whatever, you decide based on clinical judgment as to whether a face-to-face is needed. That is no different than it's always been. It's just that we've never had to put it into place in the the extent that we've had done during um, COVID. Mm. Michelle, I think you want to come in. Yeah, it was just to highlight there's a BMA in NHS England Another letter. I'm so sorry. There's so many letters at the moment um, of the 10th of March, which talks about an update on quality outcome framework changes for 21-22. And in that is the, it's the last paragraph and it talks about dementia, interestingly. Um, face-to-face reviews have to be recommend, have been recommended for patients with dementia to allow primary care practitioners to fully assess the changing needs of the patient but that's the only one I think they're recommending everything else where it's clinically appropriate to do so can be done remotely I just thought that was an interesting it, that it's that in, it's quoted you that listening, were you Michelle because I said that when I was I'm so sorry I was trying to find my paper and I was <laughs> <laughs> I've got that letter in front of me so so I did mention dementia because it was the progression of the disease and you can't do that remotely unfortunately but I should pay better attention no, it's just good. It's good to know where it is in black and white. That's I, I like the fact that I know Michelle never listens to me and that's just proved it. <laughs> okay, we're just going back just to clarify one thing, and I think we've probably done this, but if you, you don't if you don't have to consent for second doses for COVID, can we now start to use HCAs? And I think we said we were going to go back and absolutely clarify that, didn't we? And give the guidance. I think was that correct? 
Yes, that's right. Um, so we, we will come back to that. We will put that on our FAQs um, and we will put the guidance out there because obviously it's something that we just want to clarify and make sure we've got the wording and the actual evidence for um, for what we're saying. Um, okay, that's enough. That's that's um, no more questions. And has anybody else got anything else to add? Um, Lisa, Michelle, Carol, Lisa? Just one quick one. I've realised our page on website page on travel facts and the global summit needs to be updated so i've just posted in the chat q a the updated bma advice but we will get our website updated asap good spot thank you lisa and one um question answer come in who is responsible for providing covid passports to patients there is no such thing at the moment as a covid passport okay it has not been agreed um yes ministers are looking at it at the moment we don't think it'll be GPs no matter what, um, because we don't believe that, that it should be another thing on top of everything else you've been asked to do. But it's it hasn't been it has not been agreed yet. And it, there is no such thing yet. We don't even know what it would look like. It's been talked about for oh, 12 months in the media, hasn't it? It's been talked about for yeah a long time. I think, you know, I mean, whoever that was, I mean, if you are looking to go on your P&O cruise, we know that they have said that they will want some sort of uh, evidence or passport. Um, I don't know. I, I'm, I, do you know, I was thinking before today, I might have a look at my, um, my online record. Is my COVID vaccine actually put in there i suspect it is you'd like to um, think it was wouldn't you i've had my first when i've had my second will it go in is that going to be enough can i just print that off so we yeah um, well i have great authority yes it is says the answer there you go then everybody needs to get their online access to their record say off you go patient go and print it off for yourself yeah um, um there's been no final decision on that but but we do know gpc is fighting against it having to be done by gps because it's it's an admin task it's not necessary um it's you know thank you very much everybody thank you very much for 50 of you um signed in so it's obviously still useful to do this live and as we said at the beginning of the call those of us who heard us chattering on we were just saying if it's helpful for us to do this we will carry on um but we don't want to waste your time um, but we will always record it so you can always listen to it later or you can do actually you can attend live and listen later if you're really keen so um, thank you very much um everybody and um, have a good afternoon wessex lmc's supporting you and your practice